0: University with Civil War Talk Radio. Today's guest has taught American history and other subjects at Union College, at Harvard, at Brandeis, Brown University, University of Richmond, Walford College, City University of New York, the Citadel, and Wesleyan University. She's also a member of the Screen Writers Guild, a writer of children's books, and a frequently published historian whose most recent work is a biography of Harriet Tubman. Join us with the much traveled Catherine Clinton when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems do measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually,
1: it's something just as technologically advanced
0: a freight train.
1: There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today tomorrow arriving by train sponsored by north america's freight railroads
0: mission critical Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time.
1: World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you.
0: World Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, and with me today is historian Catherine Clinton. Catherine, how are you doing today?
1: Well, thanks, Jerry.
0: Good to have you here. Uh, I think the last time you and I met in person was back in February 2005 uh, at a White House reception.
1: That's right.
0: I I don't have anywhere to go with that. I just like to tell people I got to go to the White House.
1: That's Well, being being involved with the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission is a great effort and a wonderful enterprise, and it's nice to uh, visit Lincoln's former home once in a while.
0: It is. and uh, Actually, I do have somewhere to go with that, because when we were there, uh, the President and First Lady were gracious enough to invite the guests to see the Lincoln bedroom up in the family quarters. Yes. Uh, had you ever been there?
1: No, and it was really wonderful to me, because I'm in the midst of working on Mary Todd Lincoln, and so being able to visit some of her other homes. I have spent a lot of time in Springfield recently, and I'm been to Kentucky, but it's wonderful to really be in the place and see the bedroom restored with the furnishings as elaborate and ornate as she wanted them to be, and uh, Laura Bush is doing a marvelous renovation of that room to really make it look like a bedroom in Lincoln's time.
0: That's right. Of course, it was not in Lincoln's time a bedroom at all, was it?
1: No, but it is the, uh, the... style of furniture that Mary Todd Lincoln is, of course, famous for today and even, I think, um, blamed for it today. So it was interesting to see that and, of course, the desk that um, he might or might not have penned the Emancipation Proclamation on.
0: That's right. That was was the cabinet room where Lincoln did his work uh, at that time. But now it has that, that marvelous huge bed that uh, Mrs. Lincoln bought. Right. Now, so you're working on a biography of Mary Lincoln?
1: Yes. Um, certainly, I was just thinking when I was hearing the strains from the uh, Ken Burns' music from his um, documentary on the Civil War, that it was really the bringing to life the Civil War through film that got me so fascinated by the subject of the Civil War and started me writing Civil War history and brought me to, in a roundabout way, um, a biography of Lincoln's wife.
0: Well, let's talk about that a minute. That's a, a frequent question uh, that I get that I'm sure you get whenever you talk about Abraham Lincoln, is, is what's with uh, Mary? Was was she uh, as, uh, as bad uh, a person to live Could with? Could she have she been talks? as
1: bad? Could she have been uh, everything people say she is? Well, certainly she's such a great conundrum that that was one reason to plunge into her um, life, but her times, I think, are really something that I'm quite interested in. The last two biographies I've done, one on Fannie Kemble and one on Harriet Tubman, were concerned with telling about the life of an extraordinary individual, but I also believe it's important to contextualize, and one of the things I feel about Mary Todd Lincoln is that she needs to be recontextualized. There are many aspects of her personality that perhaps are not as familiar. She was indeed born and reared a southern belle, and that is something that, of course, my earliest work on plantation mistresses has prepared me for. But one thing I haven't been prepared for is the life and times of spiritualism in the antebellum era, which only escalated during the Civil War, the way in which those who were robbed of loved ones were plunged into an attempt to reach across time and space and to connect with those that had died. And spiritualism was really an incredible movement during the 1850s and into the 60s and something I'm exploring just now.
0: So this was something where people believed... uh...
1: They could directly communicate with the spirits of those who had died.
0: By conducting seances, for example, yes,
1: rapping, spirit circles, but certainly the more flamboyant Barnum-esque aspects are well known. But not the fact that spiritualists outnumbered abolitionists in antebellum America, that women played such a an important role. That most, many of the prominent reformers that we've heard of were great believers in spiritualism. That a New York State Supreme Court judge resigned his seat to become. a a spiritualist so I think there really is a lot to be learned about it and it was the era of course in which the telegram was invented and reaching across time and space was a new concept to many Americans and they thought they could reach across the spiritual time and space as well so it's something I'm really interested in exploring as part of the context of Mary Todd Lincoln's world.
0: That, that's fascinating. I, I guess that makes sense that if if you live in a world where someone 100 miles away is immeasurably distant and then suddenly a new invention puts you in simultaneous contact, Right. if you can annihilate that space, why not break Surely. down the barrier between living and dead?
1: I think a lot of Americans, of course, in recent times, have witnessed events that have put them so dramatically in touch with the past. I mean, who among us was not riveted by those people who were trapped in the Twin Towers on their cell phones trying to communicate with loved ones, trying to reach across time and space. So there is, I think, a real need for us to explore what, what is the context of sudden loss and also trying to maintain that loss. And Mary Todd Lincoln, along with many others, lost loved ones, but her loss of her child Willie in the White House and then, of course, her husband being murdered in front of her were traumas that I don't think many of us can imagine.
0: No, and and I guess I I had not realized how uh, pervasive spiritualism was. This is not a a sort of crackpot fringe movement.
1: Well, no, and I'm not trying to write a book about spiritualism, but as I said, once you start reading about it and discovering... how seriously people took it, how much a part of everyday life it was, how very, very much it fit in with evangelical Christianity and was not in conflict with it during the nineteenth century, then you begin to get a really different view of Mary Todd Lincoln and her her various attempts to commune with those she'd lost.
0: All right, that that if if the first lady tried to do that today, we would say this is well, I guess when, when Nancy Reagan supposedly consulted an astrologer
1: Surely, uh, for yeah.
0: policy, people thought that was uh, perhaps a silly thing to do. Right. But your your point is that with Mary <laughs> Lincoln did the same thing in the 19th century when everybody was doing it, or right. many people were. it's not. And it may
1: anymore. be that she wasn't the first First Lady to reach out because, of course, um, Jane Pierce had lost her son tragically between her husband's election and inauguration, and she went to the White House in great grief for her lost son.
0: She essentially so. spent all four years hidden away, as I understand it, or in mourning. Uh, Mrs. Pierce did. Is that accurate?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: So, so uh, again, in context, Mary's uh, very intense mourning for Willie after his death in 1862 is, is not as uh, out, out of the mainstream.
1: It was extreme, but it certainly wasn't out of the ordinary. There were many people who were as obsessed with death and loss, and of course it was a national obsession during the Civil War.
0: In terms of context, uh, the loss of children was, um certainly uh, just in something that's very hard to grasp how, how painful that, that is, but it was a much more common experience.
1: Absolutely, in 19th century. But I think, you know, thinking about the Civil War, imagine how we in the 21st century think about our... Children and cost them as Americans and treasure them. In the 19th century, it wasn't as if they were disposable, but they certainly were. They certainly died at such high rates that people had very different relationships with their young children. And certainly, the the relationship of children to death and dying in war is very interesting and important. I'm thinking of Jim Martin's book on children in the Civil War, Mm -hmm. a book that came out uh, about a decade ago, and everyone was thinking. We knew everything about the Civil War, but I guess we certainly don't, as new and interesting books come out every year that prove us wrong, really. I'm really pleased to be seeing a great revival and flourishing in Civil War studies, that they're broadening and deepening with um, each passing publishing season. I have a stack on my desk that's really (laughs) remarkable. I'm thinking of... uh, Margaret Creighton's book, The Colors of Courage, about immigrants and women and blacks at Gettysburg. Hmm. Ann Rubin has a new book on the um, rise and fall of the Confederacy, really looking at Confederate nationalism, I think, in a very sophisticated way in light of independence and nationalist movements today. Hmm. So, um, you know, lots of good things in the works. That's true. As as we
0: move further in time from the Civil War, we, we lose a little immediacy every year but we gain different perspectives and uh, uh, the, the thriving of nationalist movements today uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union in the past decade certainly do shed a different light on secession than one might have had 50 right. years earlier
1: and what some people even still will be willing to call the war for southern independence and I'm not saying that that is the way we should term it in our new books, but I am saying that I think it's really interesting to try to re-gauge and recalculate what feelings were at that time. A few years ago, I did a book called Southern Families at War. I edited an anthology, and um, it was really amazing to see the way German families related to the Confederacy, Jewish families related to the Confederacy. I even had a piece in there by Ted Owenby on the way the Confederate, the Confederate male imagined heaven and so i think you know really trying to think about the the struggles people had within their times to redefine themselves and the way in which white southerners may have had an ideology which is something we might study as an historical artifact um not of course divorcing it from racial attitudes, racial consciousness that went on during that period, but I think expanding and really deepening our appreciation of what the conflicts were during the 1860s.
0: That's right. I think a lot of people are drawn to history initially out of a nostalgic desire to live for the moment in a time when everything was simple, when moral questions were easy, there was right and there was wrong. Uh, But the more one looks at history, the more you quickly realized that was not the case at all. No. Uh, And that everything was just as uh, ambiguous and difficult. Uh, Decisions were not easily reached uh, in in any era of our past, and certainly not in the Civil War.
1: Although, as you mentioned, Jerry, I do write um, children's books as well. (laughs) I've done a few on the Civil War, and I was just thinking about a big revival going on on John Wilkes Booth that the American Brutus book has come out by Michael Kaufman mm-hmm. and I know uh James Swanson has a book in the works called Manhunt about the twelve days and I look forward to Terry Alford's work on Booth. But um in the children's book field I just noticed a new book came out called Good Brother Good Brother, Bad Brother uh. <laughs> which is about Edwin Booth <laughs> and James Wilkes Booth, which sort of shows the way in which sometimes we have um simplifications. But um, also, I argue the children can lead us because I uh, was asked to do an encyclopedia article on Harriet Tubman and discovered that um, the last adult biography written on her was in 1943.
0: Well, I'm, I want to ask you about that. I just, I'm struck by the image of uh, the good bad brother as uh, the feature in highlights for children, Christmas uh, right. and Gallant. Gallant protects his national leader. Goofus assassinates the president. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: That would be a rather extreme version of that, I suppose. I suppose. Uh, But in any case, uh, Harriet Tubman. Your your biography, as you point out, is the first serious treatment of this figure in well. I don't know.
1: I don't know how there there were thirty children's books in print, but no adult biography so when i discovered this writing for the encyclopedia for the confederacy as a matter of fact i decided it would be important to do something about it but i was involved in several other projects and when i turned back to it i still was amazed that there were new books coming out on sojourner truth there was a biography of rosa parks but still nothing on um harriet tubman and of course one of my great interest was to try and do justice to her long and very vigorous struggle for freedom, which did not just end with the Civil War, that she saw the Underground Railroad going above ground during the Civil War, and I was really interested in her Civil War career, her leading men into battle at the Cumbee River Raid, her involvement in um, scouting and spying operations in occupied Carolina, and I really do see her as an important and transitional Civil War figure. She, of course, was very involved with veterans' organizations after the war and saw herself as a patriotic participant in the larger cause of the Civil War and its struggles for freedom. So it was really I think, important to contextualize her that way. And uh, and then, ironically, working on her in occupied South Carolina, I came across a story which I, of course, knew, that is the first Black Medal of Honor winner, William Carney. But I found that that story really needed to be told, I thought, to a wider audience. And I've just finished a children's book that will be out later, the first children's book on the battle of fort wagner and that's coming out so it's interesting how my children's books lead to adult books and adult books lead to children's books and i really see them all as one large ball of wax to get the great stories of the civil war out to the wider public and also to get children engaged in these marvelous incredible stories of the past of heroism and of struggle which i think um we live in a very complex world today, and they are asking questions about these struggles. And so I did a book called Hold the Flag High, and Carney is a great hero in it. And um, and I think it's great to get these stories out to people of all ages.
0: I I, I absolutely would agree with that. I think uh, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about Harriet Tubman since you mentioned that, and that is the, the recent full length work you've completed. The, uh, she is known to students today. I ask my freshman students every year to name ten figures from American history, and then I ask them now name ten figures who are not political or military leaders, and that throws them for a loop. They they struggle to think of people other than, than uh, white male political or military leaders, but right. they almost always include Harriet Tubman. They've all heard of her.
1: Right. They've but all read those children's books. They've uh, read the children's books one that are out there, and uh, and I think that she she does have a great name value. But I think she's been kept on the children's shelf, and we need to really put her on the um, in the pantheon of American heroes.
0: Well, I'd like to come back to that. We're going to take a break here on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll come back and find out more about Harriet Tubman with our guest, Catherine Clinton.